in the garden, upon creation, man and woman lived harmoniously, at total peace with one another and with God. This has been what we've read about in, in Genesis chapters 1 and, and 2. We see that the man was given uh, by God. He was given a job to do. He was given work to do. He was given responsibility. The primary responsibility that the man was given was to, to lead his little family in a God-glorifying direction. His family is going to start with this woman, Eve, and then the children that God would bless him with. And God calls the man and gives him this responsibility here in the, in the garden. He says, here's your little family. I want you to lead this family. Uh, don't lead them where you want to lead them. Men, we should not lead our families where we might want to lead them, but where God would want us to lead them. And so he says, lead them in a God-glorifying direction. And then there, there's this woman who is built uh, from the man and for the man. And then God gives her to the man as a gift, presents her to Adam, presents Eve to him as a gift and says, she is a helper fit for you. She's a gift from me to you. And she is going to uh, enable you. She's going to compliment you. She's going to help you to fulfill the responsibility that I've given you by fulfilling her own responsibility to help you to lead this family in a direction that's going to, to honor God. And it's just, it's just wonderful, everything that we've read about so far. It ends with this last verse of chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So imagine, imagine with me this garden and imagine a world where there is no shame. Imagine a world where there is no shame. Now, this room is filled with shame. I'm ashamed. I know you're ashamed. And shame is that, that painful emotion. One of the most painful emotions we feel is that painful emotion when we understand the, the, the wrong that is, that is in here the wrong that is that is in us, the, uh, the the bad, the darkness, the the wickedness, whatever it is, the the realization of the wrong that is in here, and then it is that emotion that comes with knowing that, and then having the gaze of others or God be on you, and and knowing that others see or or may see what you see or what you think maybe only you see. And when we think about being in front of others or in front of God, knowing the, the wrong or sometimes perceived wrong that is in here, it is one of the most painful emotions that, that we can feel. And through Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, in this world, in this garden, 
This husband and wife had had no shame. There was nothing concealed from one another. There was nothing hidden from one another. They were naked in this garden and they felt none of those painful emotions. They felt absolutely no shame. They stood before one another and they stood before God with nothing to hide. No tears, no pain, no suffering, no shame. Now, if we just had these first couple pages of our Bible, if we just had Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we would want to know what happened between chapter 2, verse 25, and the world that we find ourselves in today, because you and I both know that that is not the world we live in. It's just not. This is not the world we live in. There are no more Edens. Not here. Not then, in the future. Not anywhere. There are no more Edens. Here in chapter 3, which we're starting today. Here in chapter 3, we find the divine and historical explanation for the present condition of mankind. So why are things not like that anymore? Why are things different? Why is there shame? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why, when I turn on the news tonight, am I going to hear of these horrific things? Why is this world not this peaceful, harmonious world that we read about? Why are marriages not like this anymore? Like it was between Adam and Eve. What? What has happened? And Genesis 3 is what has happened. It is an explanation from God. It is historical. It is what actually took place that explains the present condition of the world that we live in today. So, evil in the world today is not primarily the result of evil environments or bad legislation or lack of progressive thinking or not quite highly evolved enough primates. These are not the reasons for the condition of mankind in the world that we live in. What we're going to find is the problem with the world we live in is within. The problem with the world today is me. And the problem in the world today is you. The problem in the world today is not something out there. The problem in the world today is something in here. It's not an issue without. It is an issue within. And it has been an issue within. An issue that is at the very core of our being. It has been an issue within Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, willingly used their freedom to trust themselves and to stop trusting God. And what happens here in Genesis chapter 3 was a cataclysmic catastrophe which infected not only the couple that we're reading about in here, but it affected all their posterity, including you, including me, which explains why there is so much shame in the room this morning. 
is because it is rooted in these foundations that we read of in Genesis chapter 3. So, this may not need to be said, but in a culture like we live in today, where people think or are encouraged to think endlessly high of themselves, which we are, right? We live in a world where we do or are encouraged to think endlessly high of ourselves. Think very highly of your potential, your capacity, your inherent worth and value. And so, if that's the air that we breathe, think highly of yourself, then any idea presented as truth that demotes man is going to be controversial. Which is why what we're reading uh, is not controversial to God, but it is controversial in the world that we live in today. Because we want, we want as, as sinful human beings, we want as any upstanding human being with an ounce of instinct to self-preserve wood, we want to deny and suppress the realities and truths that are found in Genesis chapter 3. So know that going in. There is a very real part of all of you, if I can say it that way, a very real part of you that is not going to like the truths that are founded in Genesis chapter 3. That is not going to like the realities found in Genesis chapter 3. Even if you're a Christian, okay, there is a part of you, there is a sinful nature, we would call it, that does not like what we're reading. So as Christians, you may hear this and and you just think, oh, well, this is good, and, and I love this, and, and I'm a Christian, and I believe hard things, and I accept hard things, and I, and I love these truths. Don't be naive and ignore the reality that there is something within you that wants to deny and suppress this. Because if, if you don't engage with that reality, you might just sort of miss the depth of what's being said here. Oh yeah, yeah, I get it. I've got it. I've heard this sermon before. I've accepted this. Maybe, maybe not. Understand that this goes against everything that we are trying to believe. Because we do not want to demote man. We want to exalt man. And and this does not demote man. This buries man. Buries them. This isn't going to, you know, when we read Genesis 3 and, and understand the doctrine from God that's coming, the anthropology that's coming from God here, it is not going to lower man in our eyes a bit. It bury, it puts him in a ground and throws dirt on him. I mean, it is, is worse, it is worse than we might think. And Sinclair Ferguson says this, which is why this is so important, that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. So it's really important that if we're going to understand Christ and and His work and His salvation, we have to understand sin well. Which means that God's going to get exalted and, and we're going to get lowered. 
We want to bring God down and we want to bring ourselves up, but we need to exalt God and we need to take ourselves down. So if you feel offense this morning, do not dismiss what is said, even if your gut, your heart, your mind, past teaching, philosophical ideas that you have reject it. Be careful. When you, when you feel that offense and, and you've got all these things that you think are informing why you are offended, make certain that your offense is informed by the Word of God. If you're offended by, by this, as Christians, not Christians, whatever you are, wherever you are, offense will be taken at times. See if your offense is informed by the Word of God. I don't like this, you may feel, but ask the question, why don't I like this? Why don't I like this? Is it not what God's Word teaches? Or do I not like this because it is what God's Word teaches? And push through. Push through what might be initially offensive, a tactic that our enemy might use to just check you out. Push through that offense and, 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 and taste and see that the Lord is good. And hear this truth. I have found that some of the most treasured truths that I have from God's Word. In other words, some of the, if I could compare God's Word to food, which God's Word compares itself to food. Some of the best food that I've received from God's Word, it tasted bitter the first time I put it in my mouth. It didn't taste good. I didn't like it. I didn't want more. In fact, it was sort of hard to swallow. But I found that some of those things from God's Word that were difficult at first to swallow have become the best tasting truths in His Word. So as a pastor... I'd like to see you push through that offense and and see if maybe there is something that becomes so special to you here in truth that may at first seem bitter. Let's pray. And then we'll get into Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for all you've done, for all that you're doing, all that you promise to continue to do. We thank you for giving us a Bible to read, um, a spirit by which to understand And grace that you've poured out immeasurably through your son, Jesus Christ. Guide our time. Pray that it be helpful, helpful for everyone in this room and pleasing to you. So we worship you through this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are two trees in the middle of this garden that are going to be central to the story that we're reading today in Genesis chapter 3. So let's. Let's just look at chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 17 real quick so that we remember remember these trees. And let's look at the creation account of these trees. Chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God makes this beautiful garden and it sounds like in the middle of the garden, in a central place. In other words, they're not peripheral. They're not outside the garden. They're not on the edge. They're right right in the center 
of everything that's going on in this in this garden, two trees. Two trees. We don't know what they look like. Two fruit-bearing trees. And God names them and identifies them and says, this one is the tree of life. And this one, presumably near it, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God makes those two trees. And then God gives instruction in chapter 2, verse 17, regarding these trees. The, the, only, the only instruction... The only rule, if you will, that that God gives Adam and Eve in chapter 2, verse 17, in regards to these trees. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this is what God says. There is plenty of good fruit to eat. Right? We understand this. There is... Plenty of good... There's no shortage of food in this garden. You do not need the fruit that that comes from this tree. Plenty of good fruit. One forbidden fruit in the entire garden. One forbidden fruit. Now, the, the fruit itself is not evil. Like there's some magically poisonous fruit tree that we need to somehow today still identify and avoid. This isn't some nasty fruit that is growing on this poisonous tree in in, in the garden. The fruit on this tree is a reminder of God's will. It is a reminder to Adam that he is not autonomous. It is a reminder to Adam that he is accountable. It is a reminder to Adam that he is not God. God doesn't put him in the garden and say, anything goes, do whatever you want. He almost says that. I mean, God gives him a lot of freedom. But he doesn't say you can do anything you want. God doesn't say... You're like me in that way, and you have no one that you're accountable to, and you're not under authority. God, in order to establish that, though there's a difference here, okay, I love you, I want what's best for you, and so I'm giving you everything you need, and more than what you need, even granting desires of your heart, I'm giving you all this beautiful stuff in this garden, but so that you remember that you are in authority, and under authority, and so that you remember that you are under me and in submission to me and you are not independent and you are not autonomous and you are you are not unaccountable. I'm giving you one rule. Okay, and it's bound up in this tree, in the garden. You may not eat this. So Adam, God is saying, Adam must obey and choose life every day as he walks by this tree. Because remember where the tree is. It's right in the middle. And so this tree represents to Adam, this real tree represents to Adam God's instruction to him. Reminding Adam that he is accountable to God. And so every day, Adam would need to walk by this tree in the middle of the garden. And he would need to choose again and again and again to obey God and to choose life. Because God said, if you eat that, you're choosing what? Death. And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. 
So God tells Adam, and Adam must, yesterday, today, tomorrow. You need to obey, yesterday, today, tomorrow. You need to choose life, yesterday, today, tomorrow. Adam is to say no to temptation to eat the fruit. And he is to say no to the temptation to eat the fruit simply because God said so. Why, God? Because I said so. Well, this rule doesn't make sense to me. This instruction doesn't make sense to me. Why? What is God's response? Because I said so. The same is true today. We must take God's word for it and live. We take God's word for it. We believe God. We listen to God and we take his word for it. You know, some parents, when their their kids ask them, after hearing an instruction, kids are famous for wanting an explanation. Don't, I don't want you to go outside right now, son. What's the question? Why? And the implication is, well, give me a good reason. Give me a good reason. So that I'll, I'll obey you. And sometimes parents will quit back. Because I, yeah. Because I said so. Usually, not always. Usually a parent gives that answer. Because they're being lazy. Not always. Usually, well, they have a reason, but I just don't want to think about it right now. I just don't want you going outside and I'm busy doing something else and I don't, we don't need to have a discussion about it. So let's just make this simple because I said so. Now, regardless of the motive that a parent has behind giving that response, it's a very good response. Very good. And children should learn, right? You don't obey your mom and dad because they're smart. And wise and, and have good reasons for everything they ask you to do. You obey your mom and dad because God told you to obey your mom and dad. That's a simple answer. Why shouldn't I do this, Lord? Why should I not touch this fruit that is in the garden? Well, God doesn't have to rattle off a list of, of explanation to Adam. The response of God is basically because I have said so. And we need to be satisfied with God's rules in our life to obey them and to abide by them because God said so. Some of us want to experience things and we want to do things and we want to learn by mistakes. And it's just folly and it's foolishness. There are things you and I don't want intimate knowledge of and we should take God's word for it. And we should listen to him. And if he says don't do that, we should not do that. So two trees in the garden. Tree of life, tree of knowledge of, of good and evil. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, let's see what happens. First part of verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent, this is either Satan himself or it is one that is sent on his behalf. 
Not necessarily Satan himself. Uh, Revelation 12.9 calls Satan that ancient serpent. So it, it may be Satan. I think it was Satan. But it's at least one who is sent on his behalf to tempt Adam and Eve. The serpent we know by the end of chapter 3, uh, the serpent is going to look like a, a snake by the time he slithers away after the curse is given in Genesis 3. We'll get there. And so today you see snakes and you're reminded of what the serpent looked like at least by the end of Genesis chapter 3. The truth is, though, we don't know what this serpent looked like when he came to Adam and Eve. So he, he may not have been a snake. That Some of you have pictured that. A snake that was slithering up and, you know, and, and talking. It, it might have been that. It, it might not have been that. It's very possible the serpent was upright. The serpent was beautiful. It, those things are very possible. Regardless, the serpent, Satan, comes before Adam and Eve and he's going to tempt them. And this is the first place in, in our Bible that we, we learn about, we learn about Satan. And the Bible gives us some information about about who Satan is and, and who Satan was and, and it leaves a lot of it leaves a lot of mystery about who Satan was and who Satan is. And sometimes we could be tempted to uh, give more definition to Satan than the Bible gives him. So we've really got to stick to what the Bible says about our great enemy. There's two passages, some of you have heard this. There are two passages in the Old Testament that do not speak directly of Satan, but uh, the theologians have typically accepted that these are passages referring to Satan. So they talk about kings, the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, and then in Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon. So they're describing these these earthly figures, but but they're describing them in a way that, that implies that these are not just men that the prophets are talking about. They're describing the theologians of believe Satan. And so this is where the ideas that we have about our, our enemy come. So here's what we know. Not a lot. Satan is real. Created, but... Created by God, but fell through pride, took others with him, angels who are now his demons. And he is here in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. And this is where we are first made aware of his strategies, namely his what? Craftiness. He's crafty. I don't know what comes to your mind. This doesn't mean he's... It goes to Michael's. This is a different sort of craftiness. He, he is intelligent. He's conniving. Okay, he is powerful. Satan is a very, very intelligent creature who is good at, at being crafty, who is good at being shrewd, who is good at being deceptive, which is exactly what he's going to do here. He's like the adulteress in Proverbs 7, 21 through 23, who, of course, comes from, comes from the enemy, okay, and has seductive speech and is crafty. The text there says, with much seductive speech, 
She persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. This is how the tempter, this is how Satan engages people he wishes to destroy. And this is what he does here with Eve. Seductive, deceptive. He doesn't show up on a Sunday morning. You've heard me say that before. He doesn't show up on a Sunday morning with horns and a pitchfork. It's much more subtle than this. Why? Because he's crafty. He's intelligent. He's powerful. We sing a song. We sing a song, right? Where one of the lines in the song that Martin Luther wrote, where it goes through and, and, and teaches us the, the power of God's Word and the power of His Gospel. But along the way, as we're singing the song, we sing about, not to, but we sing about Satan. you remember the song? And one of the lines is, On earth is not his equal. That's true. You and I, in and of ourselves, you are no match for Satan. Satan is far more intelligent than you are. And he is far more intelligent than, than, than I am. His chief aim is to come between. So there's lots we're saying about, but lots we're not saying about Satan. I want you, I'm doing that on purpose. Because we can get on a lot of rabbit trails and people do. Satan's chief aim is to come between a soul and God. This is his chief aim in, in our lives. It is to come between our souls and God. So we must be careful not to underestimate Satan. And remember that he is a powerful being. And at the same time, we do not want to overestimate. We do not want to overestimate. For example... Some will talk about Satan like he is on par with God. Satan versus God. We don't know who's going to win. We hope it's God. They are not. They are not equals. They are not equals. Three things. For one, Satan is not omniscient. He's not omniscient. God is omniscient. What does that mean? God knows everything. God knows the past, knows the present, everything that's going on. He knows the future. He knows everything there is to know. He knows all knowledge. And we only know what God directly reveals, indirectly reveals, allows us to know. And Satan is the same way. He's very intelligent, but he only knows what God allows him to know. This also means that Satan does not know the future. Now, he is, again, we need a bigger word. He is brilliant. And he has been able to watch mankind for a long time. And he is, we would say, a great, most likely, predictor. Which is where I think a lot of fortune telling comes from. It is possible for him at times to, knowing the nature of human beings better than any of us knowing it, to be a predictor of things that, that, that might come true but he is not omniscient he does not know everything satan is not omnipotent god is omnipotent what does omnipotent mean god is all powerful god can do anything 
God can conquer anything. God is sovereign. God is in total control. God alone is omnipotent. Satan is not all powerful. He's powerful, but the only power that he has is power that God permits him to have. And the classic example you have of this is the book of Job. I mean, Satan wrecks Job. He, he does some terrible things in Job's life. Do you, but do you remember the stronger hand that is behind everything that Satan does to Job? He is, the word is, permitted. And he comes before God and begs permission from God to tempt Job in certain ways. Satan is not all-powerful. As well, he is not omnipresent. This is important. Omnipresent. What does this mean? God is everywhere all the time. God is omnipresent. His presence is, is in different places, in unique ways, and in varying degrees of power. But God is everywhere all the time. He is overseeing everything. He sees everything. There is not a place where God is absent. There is no hiding from God. Satan is not omnipresent. This means that Satan can only be in one place at one time. So Christians love to say things like, Satan is tempting me. Is possible, but very unlikely. Because that would mean that he is personally singling you out over everyone else in all of the world right now. Now, no doubt he is somewhere and he is tempting someone this very moment. But it is true that those who work for him... Fallen angels, demons. And it is true that the world we live in has been so influenced by his lies and the lies of his demons that temptation can come from many different places, including from within. And it's not necessarily Satan himself who is tempting you. So you don't need to be crazy casting out Satan or demons. This is why we don't have a deliverance ministry here at Veritas. May come a day where we need to do something like that, but we don't have a ministry for it. Satan is a dog on a leash. Think of it that way. A nasty dog. A strong dog. Powerful dog. Compared to dog to God, he is a dog on a leash. And now here's the dialogue that begins, the, the temptation beginning in the second half of verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now here's what we're going to see in this dialogue, that the very first temptation. This dialogue that happens between Satan and, and the woman. Either by Satan... By Eve or by Adam, the word of God, the word of God, the truth of God will be ignored, added to, altered or denied. All of that's going to happen here. And this is still what happens today. Anytime one of us falls into sin. Genesis 3 is what happened and Genesis 3 is what always happens. So what happens is the word of God is it's ignored or it's added to, or it's altered, or it's flat out denied. Now here's Satan's 
very first tactic. His very first tactic, if you've been paying attention in weeks past, is to undermine headship. God has placed man and woman, husband and wife, in the garden. He has made the man head. He has made the woman helper. He has given man the responsibility to initiate and to protect and to provide and to teach and to lead. Can he's given her the responsibility with a heart of gratitude to respond to his leadership. And so what is the very first thing that Satan does? He undermines, he undermines God's design. He doesn't come to the head. He doesn't come to the representative. He doesn't come to the leader in this family. He undermines headship and he comes to the woman. And he implies to her that God is unfair. Did God, do you hear that in what he's saying? Did God really say? You can almost picture the, the smirk, right? Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, what he's also doing here is he's flattering Eve. He's flattering her as he will flatter us because he's putting her in the position where you judge for yourself, God. I mean, you're a reasonable, intelligent human being. I mean, did God really say this? And what's, what's the implication? Is that, is that fair? Is that fair what, what, what God has said to you? Now, the truth is, did God say that? And the answer is no. He's also making God appear far stricter than God actually is. Eve responds. First mistake. She responds. She doesn't resist. She doesn't flee. We're instructed to do that with Satan. She engages. She engages with this this cute little serpent. And the woman said to the serpent... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So now, you see what's happening. So the, the woman is now unprotected, uninformed, dialoguing with Satan. Because we're going to find out that, that Adam is right next to her. He's, he's with her. But he is not between her and Satan. So she is unprotected. We're going to see she doesn't totally understand what God has actually said. She's unprotected. She's uninformed. And she's dialoguing with Satan. And she starts off really well. The woman said to the serpent, right? We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. That's that's true. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of, uh, of this garden. But God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Again, this is true. And Eve should have stopped after her first answer. She talks too much. (laughs) Because this is truth. But she keeps going. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Did God say that? God did not say that. So what has she done? She is added to God's word. Now we all know that it's a sin to take out of God's word. We would all say that's terrible. And you would be rightfully offended if I took a knife and cut out 
a page from this Bible. That would rattle you. And that's good because we do not take from God's word. Do you know what is equally sinful to add to God's word? God's word is perfect. So not only is it a sin to take from it, don't underestimate how sinful and and dangerous what Eve is doing here. She adds to God's word. And many people add to, add to God's word. Because if you look at Christianity, if you look at the point of, 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 of Christianity not, the point is to love God, right? To love God, to love your neighbor as yourself, to, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We exist for God. That is the, the heartbeat of Christianity. But for many people, the heartbeat of Christianity is rules. And Christianity is following certain rules, and by following certain rules, you get to go to heaven. Now, if that's your vision of God and life, then there's no harm in adding a few rules so that you don't break the actual rules. Which is what legalism is. And that's what drives that. It's we're saved by law-keeping. We're saved by rule-following. And if that's the case, by all means, let's add rules to the existing rules so that we don't even get close to breaking the actual rules. And so this is what you see what's going on in Eve's mind. She's actually operating like that. Okay, we're not, either Adam mistaught her or she's the very first legalist. And she's saying, well, we're not supposed to, I know we're not supposed to eat of it, so you know what? I'm not even going to touch it. And then she says that God said we're not even supposed to touch it, which is, it's a lie. Now, at that point, remember who she is dialoguing with. She's in a lot of trouble. Because he knows that she is willing to mishandle God's word. So, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. John eight forty four calls Satan the father of lies. This is why Satan is called the father of lies. And he right here outright denies the truth of God. Remember chapter 2, verse 17. God said, do not eat of this fruit. For when you eat of it in that day, you will surely die. Satan now opposes himself directly against God when he says to Eve and Adam, you will not surely die. There's a lot of controversy today about whether or not God is a a judging God, whether or not God's wrath is real, whether or not hell is real. The denial of that began in the garden. You will not surely die. And then he gives them motivation to eat this fruit. So he denies God's truth. And, and then, he, then he speaks for God and says, for, in other words, this is why God gave you that rule. You're, you're not going to die. It's not going to go bad for you. It actually would go better for you. And God is withholding from you. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, here's what's interesting. Adam and Eve. Eve, you are already like God. She's been created in the image of God. 
in the image and likeness of God. He tempts her with something she already has. Isn't this what sin does? You'll be, you'll, you'll have peace. You'll have contentment, Christian, if you just do this. And you already have peace. You already have contentment in Christ. It will be so much better for you if you just will. Do, no, it's as good as it can possibly be if you're in Christ. So Satan sets the hook. He sets the hook with Eve and he says the lies that he still says today, that the world still says today, that comes from within today. God is not good. Sin is not bad. And his word cannot be trusted. Aren't these the lies at the root of every single sin? God is not good. Sin is not bad. And his word cannot be trusted. The truth is that God is good. Sin is bad. And his word can be trusted. But if you're going to choose sin, you've got to believe one of those lies first. Now, God isn't good, is he? He is withholding from me. I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. I've earned this. This isn't a bad thing. This is, this is compensation. This is a good thing. His word, I must be reading it wrong. These are lies from the enemy. And then the sin in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate, which is tragic. We find here that Adam was right there saying nothing. Leaving his wife unprotected. As she is deceived by the enemy. Make no mistake, as the New Testament makes clear that Eve was deceived, Adam's sin was willful. Far greater. Far greater. But she looks... Do you see what happens in verse 6? Everything looks good here. Right? I'm looking at the tree. It's beautiful. It sure doesn't look bad. This sure doesn't look wicked. It doesn't look evil. It doesn't look like it's going to plunge me into death. It looks just maybe like the tree of life. It looks wonderful. It looks beautiful. Okay, it's going to taste good. It's going to be good for me. We're supposed to eat everything else. And now I've got some good reasons that are being given to me about why it would be good. I mean, this all makes, what do you see here? This all makes perfect sense. There's only one thing at this point that would hold Eve back. And it is the word of God. The only thing that would keep her from eating this fruit at this point is the Word of God. And that is how it will be for you, Christian, and sin. Everything will fall into place. Believe me. Everything will fall into place. And sin will look good. And sin will look right. And the only thing that will keep you from it is not your mind, is not your logic, is not your reason, is not your philosophy, is not your own ideas. The only thing that would prohibit you from moving forward is God said so. And that's got to be enough. That's got to be enough for us. It may not make sense, but we will obey God's Word. Everything looked good on the outside of this. She had good reason to eat the fruit, but she failed to remember the simple word of God that he said, do not eat this fruit. She eats, her husband eats, and then the immediate results of this sin, verse 7, and we'll look at more of the results next week. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. First it says, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were both naked. Their eyes have been opened, but not for the better. Satan said, your eyes will be opened. True statement. Their eyes have been opened, but not for the better. They have come to know good and evil by experience. Their eyes have been opened to evil within. They now have intimate knowledge of a hatred of God and His Word. They now, for the first time, have an intimate knowledge of their own rebellion. A good God who has been nothing but good and gracious to them. And they've tossed His one instruction to the ground. And rather than trusting Him, they have trusted themselves. Like the child who is told, that stove is hot. And the child who foolishly still reaches up and touches the stove. Who are you to tell me what to do? I'll see for myself. Wait for mom or dad to leave the room. The stove is hot and sin is deadly. And they, what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The fruit of sin is shame. Why is there shame in the world today? Why do I have shame? Why do you have shame? Why do we experience this, this painful emotion? The reason is that is the fruit of sin. The truth is if we did not have sin in us, we would not have any reason to be ashamed. But we are ashamed because we know we know the truth of our own sinfulness. So what's the first thing they do? They begin to hide themselves from one another. And then later we're going to read, they hide themselves from God. But when they come to the understanding of their own sinfulness, the first thing they do is, is try to hide themselves from one another, to try to conceal sin. And the way they try to conceal sin, now aware of their nakedness and now having a desire to not be seen by others and, and soon to not be seen by God because they're, they're aware of the sin, they're aware of the imperfections, they try to cover themselves by sewing fig leaves together, which is simply the concealing of sin. And all of us still sew fig leaves together. We sew fig leaves any time... We try to conceal who we really are. We try to conceal our sin. C.S. Lewis is helpful by stating a few ways that we do this in contemporary culture. One is we, we, we present well. We present ourselves well. We, as Jesus calls it, we clean the outside of the cup. We focus on the external. What is, what is the strategy there? What is the, the sowing of fig leaves there? It, it is, if I, if I make the outside of this cup look good enough, and if I make the external look good enough, then they will assume 
that what's inside matches what's outside. This is what the Pharisees did. And God said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. This looks great on the outside, but inside you're full of dead bones. And so one of the things that we do, sowing fig leaves, is we present ourselves well. We clean the outside. We focus on the external. And our hope is that no one will look any further. So the heart of modern religiosity. I do these good things. I do these good deeds. I say the right things. I'm at the right places. I'm sitting in the right seat. I'm attending the right services. I'm participating in the right ministries. I'm serving the right people. And I'm doing this. And for many of us, it has been, or maybe even it is, it's an effort to present well, hoping that no one will look any further. It's a fig leaf to cover the shame of your own sin. Another tactic is to focus on corporate sin. So rather than the opposite of a fig leaf, the opposite of concealing sin is to confess sin. Well, we'll confess corporate sin. We'll talk about how sinful we are as a nation. Or, Lord, forgive us for how sinful we have been. Forgive us how sinful uh, we have been maybe even as a church. But all that is simply avoiding confessing personal sin. Well, that person talks about sin all the time and they seem very confessional and they they read the confessional reading and that's very different, isn't it, from acknowledging the sinfulness that is within and it's sowing a fig leaf. I've even heard people confessing and apologizing for sins of others. I remember this one thing that was done up in, on a campus in, in, in Oregon. I'm sure it's been done other places where these people in the name of Christianity set up a booth and they were apologizing to, to all those in their school for the sins that past Christians had committed. It's a very prideful thing to do and makes you look very great and wonderful and there's really no apology at all. You cannot apologize for someone else's sin. You cannot ask forgiveness for someone else's sin, but what does it do? It's a focus on corporate sin rather than personal sin. It's a fig leaf. Or maybe it's just past sin. Some people, their fig leaf is to just talk about their past life of sin. If I bring that up enough and talk about who I used to be, maybe people will be satisfied and see me as a man or woman of confession. But really, it's an effort to conceal my present sin. It's sowing fig leaves together. In conclusion, let me say something doctrinal and something practical. Doctrinal first and then practical. I'm going to read you a bunch of verses in a minute. First, I want to read the, the New Testament verse that roots this enormous doctrine in what we just read. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, you've heard the verse, but listen closely. What happened to you and me when Genesis 3 happened? Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Here's what this says. Number one, we have inherited a sinful nature from Adam. 
Most Christians have heard this and readily accept it. We have received a sinful nature from Adam. All his posterity, everyone born after Adam and Eve, we all have this sinful nature, this propensity to choose not God and to go our own way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, Isaiah 53, 6. Each of us has gone his own way. Which means if you have a little baby that's born, a little precious baby that we would call innocent, it is only a matter of time before they are going to, before your eyes, actively trespass God's rules. All children will get there no matter how innocent they seem. Why? Because they have a sinful nature. This teaches us that. They have a sinful nature. God, Adam was our oldest father. He is our father and we have inherited much from him, including a sinful nature, a corrupted heart. But the second thing that Romans 5.12 teaches us is it is much more difficult pill to swallow. And it is this last part where it says that when, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Did you say... Of course, that you weren't there. But it says that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. What this means is that not only have we inherited a sinful nature from Adam, a propensity to sin, it means that we have inherited the guilt of Adam's sin. When he sinned, you sinned. When he sinned, I sinned. In that... We have inherited the guilt of Adam's sin. His guilt has the theological word is, it has been imputed to us. It has been credited to your account. And it is there before you ever actively trespass one of God's rules and actively sin. This is why the scriptures teach us that we are born sinful. That we are sinful in the womb because... We have inherited the guilt of Adam's sin. Hear these verses, Psalm 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Ephesians 2, 3. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Genesis 8, 21. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Proverbs 22:15 Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Job 14:4 Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? What is man that he can be pure or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? This teaches us that Adam was our representative. God's word teaches that when Adam was born by God. When Adam was living in this garden, making choices in this garden, he was man's representative. And what he did affected all men. Which is why the truth of Scripture is that when he sinned, we all sinned. What that means is we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's why that's important that we understand that. Friends, we are born sinners. We are not clean slates is what this teaches. We are not born 
pure and perfect and innocent. We are not then labeled sinners because one day early in our childhood we begin to sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is who we are. We are a sinful people. Sin is not just what you do. Sin is who you are. If sin is just what you do, then there's hope for this sort of moral saving of yourself, which we can get caught up in. Well, sin is just what I do, and so if I just stop doing it, then I'll be better and I'll be pleasing to God. But the problem is the corruption is much more radical than that. It's much deeper than that. It is at the very heart of who we are. So as Americans, I think, this, is, this, this imputation of the guilt of Adam is a really difficult pill to swallow. And it sounds at first, right, this sounds very unfair. Well, we, we think things like, well, if I was there, you know, I would have done this differently. I don't like that he's my representative. Or, or it is not fair that, that, that one man does something and it affects all other men. But, but understand this. If the imputation of Adam's guilt, listen, if the imputation of Adam's guilt is not true, if that's not how it works, if one man cannot represent many, if the work of one man cannot affect many, then the death of Jesus means nothing. Because friends, the good news is God sent the second representative. Amen. Jesus Christ, whose work also affects all mankind. We say, we don't like that. I don't want that. Well, hold on. Keep reading. Because just a few verses later, in verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Friends, we are fools when we think that we want to be judged individually. I don't like that I inherit his guilt. I want to just be judged one-on-one -on -one before God. You do not. James Boyce puts it, Far better than I could. If you and I and all human beings were as the angels, because that's what happens with the angels who have no hope of redemption, by the way. If you and I and all human beings were as the angels who have no family or representative relationships, and if we were judged as the angels were judged when they fell, immediately and individually, each for his own sin, parenthesis, which is how most men and women think they would like to be judged, there would be no hope of salvation, just as there is none for the fallen angels. But, because we are beings who live in relationships, and because God has chosen to deal with us in that way, both in regard to Adam and his sin, and to Jesus and his righteousness, there can be salvation. In Adam, we are made sinners. In Jesus, we who are sinners can be made righteous. We who are dead in trespasses and sins can be made alive spiritually. 
The blessings of salvation come not by fighting against God's ways or by hating him for what we consider to be an injustice, but rather by accepting his verdict on our true nature as fallen beings and turning to Christ in faith for that salvation that God alone provides. That's the doctrine and the application. You could probably finish it for me is what we say at the end of every service here. To those of you who are in Christ, may you find every blessing in Christ this week. To those of you who are not in Christ, turn to Him and be saved. This is the application of this truth. There are three at least prominent views our day and age in regards to how bad our condition is. Hey, we are good. We are sick. We are dead. Many believe today man is well. Man is well. Eat right, little exercise. Anything else? No, thank you. Just fine. It's all good. Second, maybe more popular view is an acknowledgement. You know, something is wrong, but we wouldn't go so far as to say what the Bible would say, that we're dead in sin, but man is sick. You know, we're sick. And we, you hear things like this, right? I was raised hearing things like this. We're sick, and we need a doctor. And God's the doctor. And we need medicine, and Jesus is the medicine. I remember giving that evangelistic closing, you know, deal with somebody. And the image is you're sick and you're in this bed. And you are sick with sin and you need Jesus. And if you just look to your right on the little hospital tray right there, there's a medicine bottle. And guess who's in the medicine bottle? It's Jesus. So what is the encouragement? If I believe this man is just sick, so just reach out, right? Accept him into your heart. Invite him into your heart. Take hold of him. This is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that that patient is dead. Ezekiel says, Ezekiel, go out, you're preaching, and you're preaching to a field of dead, dry bones. Not sick people in a hospital bed. The Bible says our condition is far worse, that we are far more sinful than we ever dared to believe. We're dead. Dead men don't take medicine. Dead men don't reach out for Jesus. Dead men don't choose Christ. Dead men must be born again. God, through His Holy Spirit, is not a doctor in this way. He is a reviver. And we need Christ to bring life to us if we will be saved. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It is bleak, isn't it? We must understand how bleak it is so that we will turn to Christ to be saved. 
when we understand that we are dead in sin, when we understand our condition before God and how bad it is, when we hear the gospel, we listen intently, like the jailer. Like the jailer who turns to those he had jailed and says, what do I need to do to be saved? We don't ask that question unless we believe this sermon. And then we listen intently. And we don't listen to the blessing that's going to come from the gospel. We don't listen to the material goods that are going to come from the gospel. We don't listen for prosperity in the gospel. We don't listen for the power that's going to come for our lives in the gospel. We don't listen for the example that Jesus is in the, in the gospel. We listen primarily. Our ears perk up if we believe this truth. When we hear about the substitutionary wrath-bearing sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That can give us life new life we believe this gospel i'll close with this illustration that donald gray barnhouse gave that applies really well he describes a man who was on his way to a a party and all dressed up it was a formal party and got a suit on and uh, it's not very far from his home so He is walking. He's walking there. And on the way, as he's walking in the darkness, a car uh, drives by him too close, right through a puddle, covered, covered, on his way, almost halfway now to this this party. He looks down and and, uh, assesses himself, right? Looks, and it's dark. Can't see real well, but it appears that, okay, I'm just, just wet. I've still got a ways to go. I'll be dried off by the time I get there. And so the man continues and and decides that he's going to keep going and he's going to head to the the party until he starts to approach a street light. The closer he gets to the street light, the the more he realizes that this is is mud and this is not just water, this is dirt. And and the closer he gets to the light, he, he sees how filthy he is until... There he is, halfway now to the party, and he's standing underneath the street light. It fully illuminated, and he's just covered. He's covered in filth. At that point, the man makes the decision to turn around and to go home and to find a new, clean pair of clothes and present himself to the party appropriately. When we read Genesis 3, we're, we're brought under the street light. We're brought under the street light. And each of us see how bad it is. And each of us see how, how filthy we actually are. And the truth is, We don't have any clean clothes at home. We don't have anything back home. That was it. The gospel says, keep going. Go to the party. You know why? Because your new clothes are there. waiting for you there. While we are far more sinful than we ever dared believe, we are 
way more loved and accepted than we ever dared to even hope. We're loved and we are accepted like the prodigal son who returned home from being in the filth with the pigs. And Christ greets us before we even get there. Arms wrapped around us, holds us tight, brings us in and gives us new clothes. Literally, the word says that Christ clothes us with his own righteousness. Genesis 3 is hard to read. But it is the foundation that makes the gospel so beautiful. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for saving us. God, as you are redeemed, as those who have been brought into your party or your banquet, as you call it, have been brought into the the wedding feast, thank you, Lord. Help us to live like we're at this wedding feast and thankful and grateful with glad hearts the most contented people in the world, satisfied people in the world, faithful people in the world. God, for those here today who have not believed this gospel, who have, who have believed what they've been taught by a broken and sinful and alienated world, God, who believe that they're maybe not as bad as your word says that they are, or who believe that you're not as good as your word actually says that you are, who believe that they can repair themselves, or who, who believe that you're not willing to redeem them, whatever, whatever it is, God, we pray that the truth of your word as, as preached today would be believed on by people in this room. We pray that today people would turn to you and be saved. We pray that as your word is being preached all across your planet today, that people would hear the gospel, they would turn to you and be saved. We pray these things because of and in the name of and for the sake of your son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.